Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather before you virtually. Lord, as we come into your presence today, open our hearts, open our ears. May your kingdom come, and may your will be done. Amen. Increasingly, as I look at news or social media, it, it seems as though our cultural memory, as, as though our attention span is ever shrinking. Stories come and go, shocking news events come and go, things trend and then disappear and, and just kind of fade into the noise as though they never really happened at all. And as sad as this is, we get to celebrate today a story that is 2,000 years old, and it's a story that doesn't fade, and it's a story that will not be forgotten. And largely due to a man named Saint Paul, we get to come here today and talk about the story of Paul and the story of Jesus and his church. We've been doing a series on the book of Acts called Love on the Move, and today is the final chapter of that book of Acts, chapter 28. And in Acts, we get the story of how God is establishing his church and being present through his spirit with his church, doing some new and exciting things. And so we're looking at Acts 28, but I want to specifically note that there are two things I want to hone in on, because Acts 28 is one of uh, the load-bearing, powerful chapters of scripture that we have to look in the context of the whole biblical narrative. And so first, I want to talk about how the scripture is using something called literary parallelism to give depth of meaning, layers of meaning to something really powerful the transformation of Paul's identity into Christ-likeness. And as we see this through these little literary parallelisms, we get to see that his identity changing, transforming into Christ-likeness is for the purpose of his message. And his message is proclaiming the kingdom of God. So the second thing we're gonna look at is zooming out and getting a big look at the whole biblical narrative and how Acts 28 and this kingdom of God message Paul preaches is so pivotal to God's plan from chapter one of the Bible. And we call St. Paul an apostle because the word apostle literally means to be sent out, to be sent out with a message, to proclaim something. And we see that he's ending up in Rome as a prisoner, ending his travels there. All throughout the book of Acts, Paul has been traveling, preaching, showing his character arc is transforming drastically. If you remember, Paul was not always called Paul. Paul used to be called Saul and he was the champion of everything anti-Christian. He was kicking down doors and, and dragging Christians off to prison because he thought he was doing God's work. He thought he was defending the true faith. And yet we see him here, 180 reversal, his identity completely transformed. And the author of Luke, who also wrote the book of Acts, is showing through literary parallelism how true that transformation is. And so the Bible uses these uh, literary parallels to give us such deep, intricate, dynamic stories. And it's truly beautiful, but the best way today that we're gonna be able to dig into the parallels of Acts 28 is to get your Bibles open, grab a pen or a pencil. We're gonna walk through step-by-step step, and we're gonna examine these 10 parallels between the stories of Paul and the stories of Jesus to show how the author is correlating the two, showing the, the, the path that they both take towards the kingdom of God. So the first, item we're going to look at between Paul and Jesus. The first parallel is their journey. This first slide here, you'll see on the left, we have a section for Acts 28 verses. On the right, we have Luke verses. There's going to be scriptures uh, appearing in there for you to take note of. And then Paul and Jesus have parallels all throughout Acts 28 that we're going to look at. 
the first parallel is what I already mentioned about Paul being sent out on the journey, but Jesus was the same way. If you look in the book of Luke, you'll see that chapters 9 through 19 are this one giant travel journey narrative where he's traveling up to Jerusalem and he's doing this in such a way that he's preaching the kingdom of God along the way. And so he is layering his story and Paul's story together. The author of Luke Acts is layering these two stories together to communicate what it looks like to walk in the footsteps of Christ. They're both on the journey for the kingdom of God outside of their comfort zones. And Paul's journey leads him to a shipwreck on Malta where he encounters a viper, a snake that comes out of brush to attack him. And the, the snake doesn't actually end up doing any harm. It's a poisonous snake. And he just shrugs it off as if nothing happened. And so he encounters a moment with a snake, but he responds in calm, in assuredness, and he doesn't get harmed at all. And so we see this paralleled onto the story of Jesus because metaphorically, Jesus also encounters the snake. The snake is a symbol of temptation, of hardship, of uh, accusation, of anything that is opposition to goodness. This is symbolized as a snake. So in chapter four of Luke, you'll see the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Satan comes to Jesus and, and tells him, oh, turn these stones into bread because you're hungry. And he tries tempting Jesus into wrongdoing. Satan is symbolized by the snake. But Jesus, in calm response, shakes off the snake and wins victory in the wilderness. Also in Genesis 3.15, you'll see that God at the very beginning prophesied the conquering of this snake by a, a human who would come from the seed of Adam and Eve to conquer the snake, to reverse that which was done in the garden. And so Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy from Genesis and he is conquering the snake in the wilderness. And Paul also encounters a snake showing that no harm comes to him because of how he responded. And both of these stories are showing us that in the spirit, in the power of God, it is not the entrance of a temptation or a hardship which determines our future course. It is how we respond. It is the moment we choose how to accept that which comes our way. And whether or not we trust or whether we surrender to fear. And it's this moment of faith that Paul shows complete and utter trust in God. And Paul's encounter with the snake gave him quite the abnormal reputation. If you look at verses 4 and 6 in Acts 28, you'll see that surrounding this encounter with the snake before people had a very negative idea of who Paul was. And afterwards, it was a complete reversal after they saw the trust and the faith and the power. And Jesus, likewise, if you look in chapters 4 and 9, you'll see images where we, we get a look at how people view Jesus. And they don't really know what quite to think about Jesus, but they know that something different is going on. They know that there's something weird, something abnormal, something strange. And this is a truth of the Christian walk that both Paul and Jesus are showing to us, that people will notice when we are living in the Spirit because we are not living by the rules that they're living by. We're not living by the world's rules. We're living by God's rules. It's something abnormal. And this reputation that they have, it could be positive, it's negative, but they're not worried about the reputation. They're worried about Christ in the kingdom. What does it mean to be focused on God's will? And this gives them a reputation. This gives us a reputation. We have to be careful with worrying more about what God wants and who God is than what we want, what other people want.
And playing into their growth of this abnormal reputation is the fact that they were going around and healing and casting out demons and performing miracles. And so in Acts 28 verses 8 through 9, you'll see that Paul is welcomed into a home because of what happened with the snake. And there's someone sick and he heals that person. And his reputation grows and more people who are sick come and they are healed too. And likewise, Jesus travels all around Judea healing people. And it's important because no one that they heal seemed to really do anything to deserve it. They didn't earn this healing. They didn't qualify for it. They didn't fill out the right forms. They just got healed. And this is a truth of the kingdom of God is there is a generous love. When God's love is on the move, the sick are healed, the blind can see, the lost are found, and the captives are set free just because that is who God is. And if the people of God, we today, if we want to experience that kind of healing, those kind of miracles in our hearts, in our lives, in the lives of those around us in our society, we must also be generous in the love and the healing that we give. A further parallel between Paul and Jesus and their stories is in Luke chapter 19 and Acts 28 verse 15. We see in Luke that Jesus coming to Jerusalem, he get what we call now a, a triumphal entry. He's approaching Jerusalem and this is his public declaration of his kingship. It's, it's his public action which is saying, I am, I am here as the Messiah openly. Before he was often cryptic or encoded in how he was communicating these messages. But this was a, his culmination. He's entering into Jerusalem and he gets this triumphal entry where people come out to meet him and they praise and then they would journey with him back into the city. And we see that Paul actually gets a very similar entry into Rome. And so both Paul and Jesus get this triumphal reception into the city. Both Paul and Jesus enter the city of their death. But these cities are, are key parts of their plan because Jerusalem was an epicenter of activity, of international uh, trade and presence. And so Jesus knew that his words, that his actions there had a global impact because it happened in Jerusalem. Plus there's so much significance of, of God's holy city occurring in Jerusalem and Jesus proclaiming his kingship there. But then Jesus in Acts sends Paul to Rome. And when he finally gets there in chapter 28, we see that he gets this triumphal entry, but it is also an entrance to his death, just like Jesus. Right after the events of Acts, after chapter 28 ends, a couple years later, the reign of Nero happens. And somewhere between 63 and 65 AD, Paul gets beheaded by Emperor Nero. He never left Rome after Acts 28. Both Paul and Jesus triumphantly enter a city that was going to end up being the last city they saw. Now, unlike Jesus, Paul didn't come back three days later for a surprise visit, but both entered triumphantly and both were falsely accused by their own people, which resulted in their death. We see this in Acts 28 verse 17, Paul's recounting that narrative. And in Luke 23, the first 25 verses of that chapter, we see that they're both innocent, but they're both outcast by their own people but they're not killed by their own people. They're killed by the Romans. The Jews use the presiding state of Rome to act out their own agenda. Similarly, both Paul and Jesus were talking to their own people, talking to the Jewish religious leaders from their Old Testament scriptures. 
So if you look in Acts chapter 28, verses 23 through 24, you see Paul arguing from the law of Moses and the prophets. This is what we now refer to as the Old Testament. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19 is just one of the many times that Jesus also refers to these Old Testament texts. And what they're doing is they're arguing from the Jewish scriptures what God was doing then in order to bring attention of their audience to what God is doing now in the present to show that God is still at work and to show that what they're doing in Jerusalem, in Rome, what they are doing is part of God's plan. But even though Paul and Jesus were arguing from their own scriptures, some believed and some didn't. And we can often find that we get a similar result when we talk about the Old Testament today. The Old Testament, sometimes we, we say it's, it's hard to understand. It's Maybe we say it's irrelevant, but truly it's all part of one story God is communicating to us. And that's why Acts 28 is so pivotal. We have to understand it in the Old Testament context. One of the texts that both Paul and Jesus are noted as using is in Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. It is an often uh, quoted, but yet very difficult to swallow verse. It's a, a verse that Paul and Jesus are using to bring their audience's attention to their own stubbornness, their own ignorance. It's the verse that says, you have ears that don't hear, you have, you have eyes that don't see, you're not getting what I'm trying to tell you. And so Paul and Jesus are both using the same passage from the Old Testament to try and, and put a little bit of, of shock into their audience to say, you really need to start listening to what I'm telling you because God is at work now and you're going to miss it. And we often do the same thing when we compartmentalize the Old Testament from the New Testament, when we don't zoom out and see God's brushstrokes in the whole of his plan. And so both Paul and Jesus moved onward and proclaimed the message to all those who would listen, inviting everyone who could hear to be transformed by the word to be a part of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus went into the region of the Gerasenes, um, the, the Gadarenes, and the Decapolis. It's across the Sea of Galilee, which is a non-Jewish land. It's, it's what we call Gentile land. Anything that is non-Jewish is Gentile. And so there he freed a man from demon possession and sent him to proclaim the kingdom of God all throughout his land. Similarly, in Acts 28, 28, Paul is proclaiming that he's going to preach to the Gentiles. He's going to preach to the Gentiles in Rome, and they're going to listen, he says, because they, they both know, both Paul and Jesus know that there's a resistance in their own people to this message, to the fact that God is still moving in relevant ways. And so they go to anyone who would listen. The author who wrote both Luke and Acts is very transparent that both of them are moving their message onward, that the love of God is at work and that they're proclaiming the kingdom boldly to whomever would listen. And so in Acts 28, verse 30, 31, and Luke chapter 4, 43, we see both of them focus at the epitome of, of their message, at the climax of their message, their focus on a topic that they call the kingdom of God. This is the heart of their message. And so when we see all 10 of these parallels lined up together, it looks like this. And when I first started looking at these parallels between Paul and Jesus in Acts and Luke, I kind of thought that I was, I was looking too much into it. I thought that I was over-exaggerating the importance of these parallels. But the more I started studying them, the more I started praying about them, the more I realized that the author is communicating something important to us by showing that Paul's journey mirrors that of Jesus. 
but don't let me be the one to influence or have the final say of how you read the Bible. Take these verses down, do your own reading, do your own research, and let God have the final say of what you believe about the Bible. And the author of Luke Acts takes these parallels and connects it directly to that, that epicenter, that climax of proclaiming the kingdom of God for Paul. At the end of, of the entire book of Acts, he ends with the message of Paul is to proclaim the kingdom of God. What we have to do here, because at the, at the end of any book of the Bible, when you, when you read the book of the Bible, you have to zoom out and look at what that Bible is doing in the entire story of the Bible, because God is telling us one story with many chapters. And we have to look at what does Acts 28 have to say about God's entire plan, the plan that he had since Genesis 1. So Acts 28 verses 30 through 31 and Jesus in Luke 4, 43. Let's read both of these together. So Paul in Acts, boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus in Luke, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. How many times have we heard something along the lines of, Jesus came to die for our sins, or you know, Jesus came to die on the cross? And I know that I would agree with that. I, I agree that that's what Jesus did. But in truth, if we say that Jesus came to die for our sins, and if we only say that, then we are shortchanging Jesus extremely. We read right here, 4.43, I came to pre preach the good news of the kingdom of God because that is why I was sent. Jesus did not come just to die for our sins. If that were true, then why would he come as a baby and spend 30 years just living life and spend three years traveling and preaching and teaching and healing? Why wouldn't he just come down and die for our sins and then be back in heaven? Like why would he invest that much time in his humanity? Why would he invest that much emotion? Because there's something else going on. There's something so much more to Jesus' mission, to Paul's mission, and it connects to what God is doing in the entire scriptural narrative. They're proclaiming the kingdom of God. They're proclaiming that God has not abandoned us, and they're communicating to us that we are invited into a new life with transformative love, that our identity, like Paul, can change drastically. All we are, all we do can change drastically, and we can be a part of God's story. The kingdom of God is indeed the people of God. It's people who know that they've been freed by our king. It's people who know that we live for our king and not for our captors. We do not live for greed and for hate, for anger or for fear or for death. Jesus and Paul looked to what God was doing all along since Genesis 1, since the dawn of time, and they conclude that God is still at work inviting us into a kingdom that lives into different realities. God is still at work. God is still inviting us into that freedom. So remember how Paul and Jesus both were arguing from the Old Testament scriptures because they're connecting to something pivotal that's happening there. So allow me to attempt to do the same. We're going to recount the Old Testament scriptures, what happened there. And we're going to figure out what exactly it means to proclaim the kingdom of God for Paul and Jesus. So if you'll remember the Old Testament, you might read something along the lines of, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth were formless and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. 
And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God created a bunch of wonderful and beautiful things in creation. He created humanity to co-create, to be in relationship with him. And he created humanity to follow his image, to be his representatives, his ambassadors to his creation. But humanity had something else in mind. And so humans rejected God, rejected God's creation. We chose to live, to rule by our own desires, by our own greed, in our own way. And this caused all sorts of hardship, of evil, of bloodshed, the sorts of things that we kind of still see today. But God did not abandon his people then, just as he does not do so now. He chose a couple, Abraham and Sarah, to be his covenant family, a family through which he could reach the world again. Abraham and Sarah followed God's lead and they became a covenant family, a covenant people, a covenant nation then, a nation called the Israelites. These Israelites were rescued from Egypt by God. And they were led into the wilderness, just like Jesus was led into the wilderness in Luke chapter four. And they were led into the wilderness and there they experienced the presence of God. On Mount Sinai in Exodus, and then in the tabernacle, God continued to be at the heart of his people, to be in the center of his people. And then in Exodus chapter 19, he gathers people and said something very interesting. He said, the whole earth is mine. Exodus 19 verse 5. He's gathered the nation before him and he's revealing his plan for redemption and for salvation for the whole world. The whole earth is mine, not just one family, not just one nation, not just one country. The whole earth is mine. This is Exodus. This is not Matthew, Luke, Acts. This is God's plan since the beginning. So God puts his presence. If you look at the, the diagram here, God's presence is at the heart of his people. And then he has designed this structure, this plan, this strategy to allow his presence to be carried relationally through people out to all those who don't yet know him. So we have God's presence in the center, and then we have a priest. A priest is, is someone who is responsible for, or has the ability to facilitate a divine relationship, a covenant relationship. So you have the priest which carries and transmits God's presence, which builds God's people up towards God's presence. And then you have the tribe of priests, not just one priest, but it's the whole tribe. In the uh, Exodus narrative, we see that that is established from the Levites. Aaron's and Moses' people uh, are, are the Levites, and they are the tribe of priests. But they exist within the entire nation of Israel. And in Exodus 19, verse 6, we see God call Israel a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. Mamlekat Kohanim, a kingdom of priests. This is where Martin Luther gets his idea of the priesthood of all believers. This covenant people of God, every single one of them is able to and responsible to facilitate God's presence to the world, to facilitate God's goodness, God's delight to the whole world. That's where we get the outside circle. The whole earth is in connection with this nation of priests who carries them to the connection of this tribe of priests, who carries them to the connection of the priest who carries them to God's presence. And this has been God's way of being at the heart of his people since day one. And then we see that Jesus came along and he didn't upend the strategy. He just took it on to its next phase. 
Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. Because he read the Old Testament and he read what God said in Exodus 19. He, he saw God's design for all the earth. The whole world is mine, God said. Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations. And so we have God's presence yet again at the heart of his covenant people. But then in Hebrews 4, we'll see that Jesus is established as our high priest, as this person who is responsible for carrying us into God's presence. This is what we think about when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can get to the Father but through me. Jesus has positioned himself as a priest between us and God so that we can facilitate our relationship, so that Jesus can facilitate our relationship with the divine. And Jesus, you'll, you'll understand, has 12 disciples. And in Luke, he sent out 70 apostles. And so there's this larger group of people that Jesus is teaching, is bestowing the Spirit upon, like Paul. And these people are as, as a priesthood, a tribe of priests around Jesus. And they facilitate leadership to and the presence of God and the Spirit to all Christians, the nation of priests, the kingdom of priests, the people who follow in the footsteps of Christ, the people who transform their identity to preach the kingdom of God. And we as Christians, our design is to carry that presence to the whole earth. Go make disciples of all nations. And this is the corporate model as a body of Christ. This is what Jesus has in mind for us, to be relational and to carry God's presence out to the world. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 22, the most important commandment is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Because God has never designed humanity to exist in relationship with God without existing in good relationship with one another. We have to be able to interrelate, to, to be united in the body of Christ for this strategy to work. Because if we can't be in good relationship with the world, with the Christians, with the apostles, with Jesus, if we can't have this relational dynamic to how we live our life, this good, loving neighborhood, then we aren't able to communicate the love of God in meaningful ways. This is how God has designed his people group. This is the corporate setting. Jesus has added another dynamic to be laid on top of the corporate setting. That's the personal setting. And he tells us that we receive the Holy Spirit. That's what he tells his disciples in Acts chapter 1. Receive the Holy Spirit. It's come on you in power. In, in Jerusalem, this is this Pentecost happening. And they go with the Holy Spirit to all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The whole earth is mine, says the Lord. So again, God's presence is at the heart of his people. But this is an internal paradigm happening now. This is happening internally within us. And so we have the spirit in us. If you, if you read Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us all about how the spirit is now dwelling within us. And we can change our identity around what the spirit is doing and transforming us on the inside. So the spirit in us communicates God's presence so that we can draw it into our church family. As we gather in our homes today, this is our church family. It might not look like we're used to, but we get an opportunity here to be church in our homes. And we get to invite our neighbors and our friends and our family. We get to experience God's presence here in our backyards, even if we're not able to gather in a church setting. And from our church family, we carry God's presence into our local communities. We have an ability and a responsibility to care for the people around us, to love our neighbor as ourself. And this is how we develop a kingdom of God within our local communities. 
our local communities are a means by which we communicate that presence to the whole earth. This has always been the strategy of God to reach out to a people who do not want to be in relationship with God because they don't know God, because they don't know the love of God. And this is why Acts chapter 28 is so fundamental to the entire biblical narrative, is Paul, in Christ-likeness, is marching to Rome, proclaiming the kingdom of God, inviting people into this dynamic, this relational, get-to-know-God model. Paul's marching into Rome. He's somebody who could be you or me. He's somebody who was a person of atrocities, a person of evil, transformed by the love of Christ, inviting proclaiming the kingdom of God, he is in this ripple effect where Christ gives us God's presence, God's presence sends us to the world. So Jesus and Paul, at the heart of their message, they're proclaiming the kingdom of God, inviting all who will hear, all who will listen to be a part of it. They're inviting people to live in a kingdom of God. A king owns that which is in his kingdom. A king defends that which is in his kingdom protects and prospers those who are in his kingdom. And if we live in this presence of God, if we live in God's kingship, we are no longer citizens of the kingdoms of this world. We are no longer under the jurisdiction of evil, and we are no longer uh, acting according to the laws of greed, and we no longer owe our allegiance to racism. Uh, we don't allow our hearts to be requisitioned and controlled by fear. We are free from emotional abuse. We are free from these taxations, this construct of our political identity, our political party, our nationality, our superficialities. These are not our citizenship. We are a people of God, owned, controlled, loved by, prospered by the will of the Lord. We belong to a God who redeems. We belong to a God who reconciles who loves and who restores, who unifies. So let us proclaim this kingdom of God because it is here for us now, today, and forevermore. And so I invite us as we close this, uh, this chapter of Acts today to, to make some notes, to write yourself some questions, uh, to remind yourself to pray, to meditate, to be thoughtful about what we're, what we're reading through and how God's love is on the move in your life and how God's love needs to be on the move in your life, your family, your community. How can we proclaim the kingdom of unification, of freedom, of delight, of God's goodness in all circles? If you are home, invite your neighbors and friends and family to worship with you in your backyard or your home. If you are gathered in a church building, build the kingdom there. If you're out in your community, build the kingdom there. Get to know Jesus Christ. And then everywhere you go, you will build the kingdom. And may it be so.